An eminent Bible scholar has said that in the events of Eden, we find the one satisfactory explanation of what's happening in our world as well as what's going on in our own individual lives. It helps us understand what he meant by that if we recall that at first, those whom God created in his image were simply called man and woman. Later, they were given the Hebrew word, which simply means man, Adam, and Eve, mother of all living. In reality, their story is not one only about a remote ancestor, but is also a story about us. It's our story. A story about a God who creates and gives us boundaries, makes us able to stand, but also creates us free to fall. And as we look at the story in Genesis, we understand better what's going on in us and in our world. Look at the encounter with the snake, the serpent, or the tempter. Not your ordinary run-of-the-mill snake. Many of us have aversions to snakes. I'm only afraid of those that crawl. But here is a snake, not like other snakes, in that this one stands erect and speaks with a human voice. His first words constitute a misrepresentation and the planting of a seed of doubt. He is addressing Eve, the mother of all living. He says to her, Did God tell you that you were not to eat of any of the trees in the garden? Now, obviously, God had not said that. There was enough truth there to make her listen. There was enough falsehood to lead her astray. God has said, You may eat of the fruit of all the trees in the garden, except the tree in the midst of the garden, which is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you shall not eat of that tree. So he plants a doubt. Now she must render a judgment, considering, did God really say that? Is that really the word of God, or is it not? Did God set me in this beautiful place and deliberately forbid that I should enjoy its pleasures? Suddenly they began a conversation, a theological conversation about God, and it is a conversation not designed to help us serve God, but designed to bring us to the point of disobeying God. Eve was quick to respond. In fact, she corrected the serpent when she told him that that God said we could eat of, of all of the fruit of all the trees in the garden except the tree in the midst of the garden, and we must not eat of that tree, neither shall we touch it, should we touch it, lest we die. Now Eve's really on, on the way to succumbing to temptation, and this is probably a path which all of us take. We can all learn something from it, because what has she done? She has magnified the strictness of God. God didn't say anything about, if you touch it, you will die. He simply said, don't eat of the tree of the, of the knowledge of good and evil or you shall die. And, and he said it as a candid expression of boundaries, not a threat. And now she adds that, and even if you touch it, 
you will die. She's magnifying God's strictness. She's beginning to say, God is a little bit unreasonable. If he expects all of this from us, God's being a little bit unreasonable. She gives the advantage to the tempter. Because in her response, she reveals that that particular prohibition has been needling her from day one. And she's sick of some parts of the garden being set aside into which she could not go trespassing. And so given that note of encouragement, realizing that this has indeed been needling the woman, the tempter presses on. And this time he really hits pay dirt when he suggests that there is the possibility of impunity. That is, there is the possibility that she can do this thing and get away with it. She can do it without any penalty. He says it so simply and clearly. Come on, you shall not die. You shall not die. There isn't any harm in what we're talking about here. No harm at all. When did you first hear, hear another creature say that to you? Was it at college, before college, after college? I know the first time someone said that to me, home and church and God seemed far away. Come on, there isn't any harm here in what I'm suggesting. There, really, you will not die. Isn't it interesting that the first doctrine in the Bible to be discarded is the doctrine of judgment. You can do it and not suffer any consequences. That has always been a popular idea, and it's reached the zenith of its popularity in our time. One man wrote the other day after looking at modern theology, and he said, we've finally done it. we finally reached the point where we have all gospel and no judgment. We have everything is good news. It's always good news, and there's never any bad news, and so consequently the good news isn't good news anymore. It's cheap grace, and it doesn't mean anything, and it doesn't make any difference in the lives of the people who receive it. Judgment was discarded. Jesus had to affirm and reconfirm the doctrine of judgment. Alexander McLaren, the great Scottish preacher, said, If you weaken the awe-inspiring command of God and that which follows the breach of that command, then we become like a house without any walls, and any enemy can march in unhindered. All the tempter did was weaken the awe-inspiring command of God when he said, Thou shalt not. She, the tempter weakened that command, and then it was soon to be breached. It still works the same way. It's still the same pattern. Just in the event she was not yet ready to take the forbidden fruit, he goes on to encourage her by giving her a rationale for sin. The rationale for sin is, you shall not die, 
but your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Now that's an intoxicating thought, isn't it? To be like God. Nobody's setting any boundaries for you. Going and doing and being whatever I want to go, be and do. I mean, I am my own person. I do it my way. I'm not going to have anyone else preaching at me. Here is the idea that we can be like God. Here is the suggestion that the commands of God are not really a parapet wall as God meant them to be. They aren't really a parapet wall to keep us from falling, but they are a barrier to keep us from having fun. Now we have the rationale for sin. And it's downhill from this point on. Eve looked at that fruit and it looked good. And she, as a matter of fact, the Bible says it was a delight to the eyes. And that's how I know we aren't talking about an ordinary snake here. I mean, not your run-of-the-mill, slithering kind of reptile. We just aren't talking about that kind of snake. She would have been turned off to start with by that. Maybe not as turned off as my uncle was. My uncle Pat, one of my favorite uncles, was walking with some of us through the swamp one day when I was just a boy. And I remember hearing a, a blood-curdling yell from his direction. All of us went rushing over there to see what in the world had happened to him. And we found him just trembling, so weak he couldn't stand up. He hadn't been weak a few minutes ago. A few moments before that, he had encountered a rattlesnake right in the, right in the road on which he was walking. And he didn't see him until he was so close he was afraid if he moved, the snake would strike. So what he did was lean over ever so gently and pick up a limb and club that rattlesnake to death. And now we find him and all the adrenaline's gone, the strength is washed out of him, and he's sitting there in the, on the side of the road, and we're saying, what can we help you do, Uncle Pat? And he said, well, the first thing you can do is, is help me roll this log out of the road that I used to kill him. <laughs> he had found an extraordinary amount of strength to pick up that log and kill that snake. Now he was, he was terrified. He was turned off. But real sin, the reality of the situation is that the tempter always makes forbidden fruit attractive. Oh, it isn't nearly as attractive after you've eaten it and you realize what the consequences are, but up front it's very, very attractive. And so Eve was going to succumb. I remember that trip some of us took to see the churches of Revelation. We were going up to Pergamum to see the hospital where St. Luke is believed to have done his internship. And on our way back down that winding road, we looked out of the window of our bus and saw a man who had come out of the mountains with a, with a bear that he had taught to dance. He had captured the bear when it was only a cub, we later learned, but now it's a full-grown bear, and he's out there beating his tambourine, and this bear is just dancing. It's the most wonderful thing you've ever seen. What, what a happy sight, a bear standing on his back legs, just dancing, dancing, dancing. 
wanting all the tourists, of course, to stop and give them a dollar for the show. Well, being typical tourists, we had to stop. We went piling out of the bus to see that wonderful thing. And then when we got up close, we discovered that there was a ring, a cruel ring in the nose of that bear. And to it was attached a chain that had not been so obvious at first, going to the arm of its master. When we look at the forbidden fruit, we never see the ring in the end of the nose. We never understand at that point what Paul meant when he said, whosoever sins is the slave of sin. Uh, you think you're going to enjoy uh, trespassing the command of God, why, it's going to make you a prisoner. What are the consequences of sin? Well, Eve surrendered to sin. She took and she ate, the Bible says. And that was a yielding to sin, and it has always been with sin that to yield to it is to attempt to please oneself and to disobey God. Yielding to sin is to please oneself and to disobey God. She took and she ate, and just as the tempter had said, her eyes were open. He had been truthful at that point. Her eyes were open. And she gave to her husband. And was he the victim here? Not at all. For he had been contemplating the same thing. He knew what she had done. When he saw that she had taken it, he grabbed it and had some himself. And their eyes were open. And the harmony in the garden was gone. Now there was an uneasiness. They began to cover themselves because the fruit of sin is shame. They began to cover themselves and then they started to hide themselves from God because they knew the true gardener would come and call their names. And one of the effects of sin is to separate us from our maker. God began to call. God doesn't drive us. He draws us. He, he calls our name. He began to call for Adam. And notice how Adam answered him when God said, Who told you you were naked? Who, who, who broke this state of innocence? What has happened here? Notice what Adam says. He says, I heard you. I was afraid of you. I, I ran. I, I hid myself. I, 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 I. It's no longer a God-centered universe. Now it's what Paul meant when he said, the self has turned back unto itself. Everything is I. So they have come to the low point, having been created in the image of God. Now they are at the point of explaining themselves, and they show a remarkable competence to rationalize what has happened. Why, Adam, why did you do this? Why did you eat that forbidden fruit? And now he gets a little bit arrogance in his new freedom, in his new irresponsibility. He said, the woman. But he didn't just blame Eve. He said, the woman whom thou gavest to me. In other words, part of the fault is yours too, God. You set this thing up. 
And then he turned to the woman and said, Why have you done this thing? And she said, The serpent did it. He made me do it. Dr. Chapel was right when he said that if we have an excuse for our sin, we aren't a sinner. If we can excuse our sins, we aren't guilty. If we can find an excuse for our sins, we don't need God's forgiveness. Because sin isn't a reality until we own it. Like the Apostle Paul who said, I am the chief of sinners. He didn't say, I used to be a sinner back when I was running around persecuting the church and putting people to death and throwing them in prison. He didn't say, I used to be a sinner in my young days. You should have known me then. He spoke in the present tense. He said, I am the foremost of sinners. But they didn't own theirs. They rationalized theirs. And they were expelled from paradise. Isn't it interesting? They were put out of paradise because they disobeyed. We gained paradise because we obeyed. God was gracious. God clothed them. But he wanted to clothe them with glory. And now that would have to be delayed. Paul, thinking about that, said, Sin came into the world by one man, one woman, but sin has spread to all of us until it has become the universal problem of the human family. Now, the Bible doesn't stutter when it says that. And the Bible doesn't argue about the reality of sin. The Bible assumes that. The Bible says no one is righteous, no, not one. All have fallen short of the glory of God. If anyone says he has no sin, then he is a self-deceived person. He deceives himself, and, and the truth isn't in him. The Bible assumes the reality of sin. It's not very popular to say that anymore, but the Bible doesn't mute or soften its voice and... Neither can we. It was Van Dyke who said, It's better to be sober by the, sobered by the saddest fact than to be deluded by the merriest lie. Until we come to terms with the reality of the sin problem, we cannot be redeemed. How do we do it? We do not do it. We cannot save ourselves. We can sit rubbing together the, the wet sticks of our existence until we die and never achieve a single spark or ray of hope. It is not within our power to save ourselves. We have thousands of years of history before Christ to prove that. It is not a possibility for us. Fulton Sheen said, we are like pieces of a clock. He said, all the pieces of the clock are there but before the clock can really go, someone has to bring a mainspring. Someone outside the person has to bring the mainspring and do an inner work in the heart of the person. Jesus says, out of the heart all sin comes. Someone has to bring the mainspring and do a work in the heart for the clock to run. What happened to us? The same thing that happened to Adam and Eve. She took and she ate. 
And do you know what God had to do to change those terrible words into saving words? He had to become poor. He had to taste poverty and death and surrender his son to die on the cross before he could take those words she took and ate and turn them into take and eat and you will live. Because he offered his only son as the price to make that happen. That's why we sing. That's why we are a joyous, thankful people. That's what Christmas and flowers and lights are all about, that God has made provision to save us from our sins, that one who knew no sin has become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And in His grace, we are saved. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, you loved us so much that you gave your only son to die for us that we might not perish but have everlasting life. If we have not yet chosen to trust him for the atoning work of salvation that was done to free us from the bondage and the burden of sin, then give us an extra measure of grace in this moment that we might begin to trust and believe and thus experience that glorious freedom which comes in our new bondage to Christ. For his sake we pray. Amen. Now let those who feel the call and claim of Christ in your life, those who wish to be presented as new members of our church, will you come forward as we stand to sing our hymn of commitment?